You're listening to the Art of Dying Well podcast, making death and dying something we can all talk about. Hello, everyone. Welcome to our Art of Dying Well podcast. Now, if you're a regular listener, you'll know that last time out we were talking about death and pets. So today, you might be relieved to know we're back on humans. Now, accompanying a loved one or a friend when they're dying is not an easy task. I think we all know that. It's very emotional and, of course, there's no rule book. That said, we thought it would be useful to produce a downloadable sheet providing a little deathbed etiquette. It's not really a list of do's and don'ts, obviously, but think of it more as some helpful advice when you're feeling a bit, I don't know, lost or uncertain at the bedside. So to talk to us about deathbed etiquette, we have Dr. Amy Gaddo. Now, Amy's a palliative care doctor and a lecturer in palliative medicine. As well as being an expert in the field, she also has her own personal experiences that she shares with us too. So now comes the Skype klaxon. Due to the rather chaotic nature of the summer season, we linked up with Amy via Skype, so do forgive us for the audio quality being just a little bit under studio sharp. I kicked off the interview asking Amy whether you have to act in a certain way at the bedside. I think it's really important that there there isn't a specific way to act or a specific way to feel. I think that's the most important thing to say is there's no rules with this I think why people find it difficult is because as a society we don't really think about death and sort of death is, is less common I mean in some ways that's a good thing you know people are living longer that's a success of public health of medicine but it means that people aren't around death as often and a lot of deaths are having in, happening in hospitals so I think these are all the reasons why people are nervous and apprehensive and and obviously, it's a very sad time as well. But yeah, not to feel like I think calling it deathbed etiquette makes it feel like there is a specific way you have to do it when there isn't. And in many ways, we you know we we all die at some point, of course. Mm-hmm. But do you sense that people are more or less fearful these days? Do you think it, death and dying is a conversation people want to have? They seem to want to have it, even if they're nervous about it. Are you sensing more people are receptive to talking about death these days? I think it's a difficult one. I think I think certainly, I suppose when you, when you mean about these days, so I think certainly, you know, compared to a few generations ago, death and dying is certainly a topic that's not, not often discussed, discussed, and I think people find it difficult to talk about it. Hmm. Maybe things are slowly changing in more recent times in terms of, the, you, know, you know, celebrities or people are blogging about their experiences or, or different things like that. And so maybe there's a little bit of a sea change, but I think mostly I think it's a difficult topic and also it's a topic that people don't really often have much experience about. Yeah, and, and we've actually put together a sort of deathbed etiquette sheet. And there's some really uh, interesting points on here. Do you want to take us through a few of these? There's some that one might consider to be quite obvious, like be attentive to your loved one and what they want and uh, be there to support them. And for instance, if there's something that concerns you about your loved one, seek out help or advice. I sometimes think that seeking out the help or advice is something that people at the bedside find quite difficult, don't they? They're, they're not too sure how to go about asserting themselves in that in that position. What would you say about that? I think that's a really important one. And, and as I was mentioning to you before, I had a, a chat with some of my colleagues yesterday because they knew I was coming on to the podcast. And one of the nurses told me a story about 
some relatives who had been really concerned about their relative. I think he, he'd been in a chair and they were very concerned he was going to stay in the position mm. of the chair when he died. And, and this was a real concern for them. But they were able to open up to her and tell her that this was their concern. Um, and she was able to reassure them and actually move his position and, and help them. So that could have just been on their mind the whole time. And if they, if they hadn't, you know, sort out for that, that help or advice. And healthcare professionals, I know we look like we're busy all the time and they haven't got time to stop, but actually there's nothing we want to do more than, than to help and support people at this time. You know, even the most, I work with, you know, colleagues are just so busy, but th this is their priority to support patients and support their families at this time. So definitely do just seek them out and, and ask, because I think that would really distress them if they, if they found out later that you've been worrying about something and, and not being able to say it. Interesting. Yeah, that's a very good point. And it, it also sort of goes a little bit into one of these other points, which is to aim to create some personal space around the bed, particularly if your loved one is in hospital. And I think sometimes, you know, we, we see these as clinical spaces rather than, mm -hmm. well, you know, we're going to be here for a while, potentially. Or either way, we want to be comfortable and for it to be slightly personal because it's quite an intimate time, isn't it? So you wouldn't want it to be too shut off and clinical, would you? No, I think that was one of the things that, again, when we discussed it together, is, is trying to make this not a clinical thing. This is not a clinic. I mean, I have people die in hospitals and they die after illnesses, but this is not a clinical process. This is, you know, a, a, the most major life event you're going to have, you know, after your birth and death. And, and so it's trying to make it not clinical is just so important. And it doesn't have to be anything complicated. A few photographs is always really lovely we love to to see photos again for, for healthcare professionals love to see them as much as anyone else to for us to know the person a little bit bit more and uh say some photos of them uh when they were well or with their families just really lovely yeah that's interesting because i think sometimes we we sort of are guilty of thinking quite clinically about healthcare mm. professionals, aren't we? We sort of, it's not that we dehumanise, but we think you're here, this is your job, it's administering this, it's doing that. It's less sort of, we might think, oh, do they really want to know what I'm thinking about this or my anxiety about that? Or, But that's obviously not the case, is it? No, absolutely not. No, so so my specialty is palliative care, and in our assessments, again, taking back to when when I teach on this this topic, is that any assessment of a patient for any symptom or or talking to relatives that we always think about in different domains. So we think about the physical, and that that is important, um, but we also think about the psychological, the family, the social, and the spiritual as well. So for anything, even a, a simple what might be seen as a simple thing like pain, hmm. we think about all these different areas because actually we are interested but not only because we're interested it actually does help us to help the person if we think about all these things so so we could support um someone better when they're dying if we know about them and we know what's important to them so say if particularly music is important to them or particular people are important to be with them having those things makes it calmer and helps the patient so so that's why it's so important and i hope this doesn't sound like a strange question it might yeah. um do you feel good or better when you've sort of walked away thinking that someone was reconciled and had a, a so-called good death? Yeah, no, I mean, that, that's the reason why I go to work, really, so it's not a stupid question, you know. Um, you know, for me, I don't know I don't know what success at work would, would be for you, James, as I know <laughs> the podcast went very well or whatever, you know, so for me, you know, that's that that is, you know, that that's how we would define a, a, a good day, really. Uh, and we would accept that it doesn't always happen. For, well, for the vast majority of deaths, it does happen. And yeah, mm. no, that's that's what I 
pride myself not alone it's it's very much a team thing but yes that, that we can achieve that absolutely yeah and i have to say when, when my brother died pretty young and i remember i mean i don't think you ever quite forget that that last mm. the last few moments at the bedside or even the if, if you're fortunate enough to have weeks ahead of time which i was so i, I, had, mm-hmm. I had some very precious time there but it can be quite consoling in grief afterwards can't it if you feel that your loved one was reconciled and, and actually understood what was happening accepted what was happening and and wasn't in too much sort of internal turmoil when mm-hmm. when that time came around no absolutely we had Cicely Saunders was the um, founder of the modern hospice movement and she says how someone dies lives on I can't remember the exact quote, but lives on in those that live afterwards. So basically, it's very much then, it's so important for that person, but it is even more so, it lives on in the memories of of the people that that love that person. Absolutely, just so precious. And is it fair to say, as as a palliative care expert, that actually, you know, although the job with that particular patient might end when when they die that actually there's still a little bit to be done with regard to the family and what what happens to them next is that a part of palliative care uh, yeah it's a very important part of palliative care so i had a patient yesterday that i you know it's not often but sometimes i phone the relative because i knew there was things to talk about with, with the relative and you know said my door's open that you know you you can come back and talk to me at any any time about this you know because there was a lot of things that had happened and, and particularly we have um we work very closely with our bereavement colleagues and they're part of our team and uh they actually sometimes see patients before death or see relatives before death so we can have sort of a transfer of services across the different areas and then we communicate with them as the things that we're concerned about. So, no, I mean, it, it's an integrated part of the service. Yeah. And um, again, going back to the, the deathbed etiquette, tell us a few <laughs> of those things that maybe. I know you said earlier there's no rule book. I completely accept that. But, but mm-hmm. what, what are good things to say and do around around the bed of someone who's dying? I think um, it's to be what you were like before. So if you were a family or, you know, a group of people, friends that were, well, it depends how, if you're in hospital or not, but if you were quite noisy, then you especially have to keep in account some of the other patients. But, you know, if you were fairly noisy or whatever, then carry on being fairly noisy. If you were quite quiet, then be quite quiet. You know, it's, it's, it's to be how you were before. You don't feel that you have to be a bit different. I know a lot of families, I mean, that... Um, when they get together they have the tv on and that's perfectly normal so you know people just have the tv on and they're quietly watching tv together and not feeling that they're having to you know be having big deep and meaningful conversations it's important that people have the opportunity to have conversations they want but there's quite a lot of time when the the person's not able to talk and actually um just being quiet and and you know doing something watching the tv reading whatever you, you normally do i think would be so Something almost a sense of, of normality, I suppose, in, yeah, in yeah. amongst this. And there are two, I can read two points on, on here that I agree with, and I think are very important points to make, such as you don't have to sit in silence. You know, mm-hmm. you can have some gentle background conversation, music, that sort of thing. And also, which I suppose is slightly akin to that, holding your loved one's hand is often more powerful than words. So uh, mm-hmm. on the one hand, Maybe not. Maybe you don't have to sit in silence. On the other hand, there's really no problem with being silent or, or showing a, a powerful gesture. Uh, that goes back to the no rule book, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. And obviously, for, for I think it's something people don't realise if they haven't had experience it, that sometimes in most situations this sort of 
period of time can go on for a number of days and so so you might have times where you are talking and you're holding hands and there might have be times when you're all just sort of in the room but but doing other things or whatever so that's another reason why there can be variation now i know that your mum died a year or so back and obviously you you cared for her and one of the questions i was going to ask was you know professionally you think that a doctor a nurse a carer might act in a slightly different way and we talked about being clinical but did you find you acted you know how did you act yourself when you were faced with with obviously with a loved one your mum when she was dying did you surprise yourself with your behavior or did you act as you thought you would um i think in some ways it was it was always interesting but i think my family and they'll, they'll laugh at me now for this but i don't think they see me as a doctor which is true because they've known me that i'm not a doctor so i think that helps quite a lot i think my mum did let me go to appointments in the end which was quite helpful because i did want to go but um yeah. should yes yeah, she'd let me go um so yeah so i think because you're with your family you act like you are when you're with the family all the time my family don't see me at work i think i just did one thing i think to make sure she had the right medication quite early on yeah. with trying to do that in a way that uh, the junior doctor still was able to go and encourage him how to seek advice but otherwise no i felt very much as a daughter rather than yeah, rather than as a doctor, yeah. I presume she was more yeah. reassured by being around Amy more than anything else, really. Yeah, yeah. Well, she, yeah. So she had a brain tumor, so she was sometimes uh, a little bit not herself. But yeah. uh, so then she used to tell us off because I wasn't looking after the grandchildren. That's what she was more bothered about. <laughs> yeah. So, so she hadn't read the rule book about deathbed etiquette. She was a uh, yeah. Should be out uh, off looking after her wonderful grandchildren rather than sitting around her bed. She was a very active person. So. Well, that's selfless. Sounds like she asserted <laughs> yeah. herself very well. Yeah. <laughs> But there is that sort of, you know, I'm going to touch upon your, your sort of teaching side of things now. There is that, that view that doctors particularly are literally clinical. Um, I'm not sure that's particularly fair, but that is a, a view that might permeate. And in terms of sort of bedside manner around a dying patient, do you think we are in need or, or professionally there's a need for better formation and education? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it, things are getting better. It doesn't mean that they're, they're perfect, but certainly the modern medical school curriculum does a lot more about communication skills and, um, than, than it has done previously, and that's improving more and more. Because it's so recognised that it's just vital to, to being a good doctor, you're not going to get good outcomes if you don't communicate clearly and involve patients, involve families. Yeah. I think when it comes to, to palliative care, I think there's still there's a lot of variation. So it's studied about every five years or so in the UK, and it's certainly improving that there's more hours in the curriculum. But there's still some places where medical students won't see a palliative care or a dying patient as medical students will certainly spend significant length of time with, with patients and I think that is quite concerning because when they're junior doctors we know that they will yeah. so yes there's, there, there's improvements but there's still more to be done. Looking back at the deathbed etiquette still some more points on here I'd like to bring up because they're yes, very, very interesting. Reassure your loved one that they are free to let go. This permission is often taken. Do you think it's sort of the case that those of us by the bedside that I'm not saying we're in denial, but we really don't want our loved ones to die, even if perhaps, you know, that they are more reconciled themselves. Is that a difficult one, do you think, giving them permission to die as in I'll be all right, mum, or, you know, if you're if you're comfortable and you're ready, just go? Mm-hmm. No, I think it's it's a very difficult one, isn't it? Because at the end of the day, when we're talking about, um, you know, the, 
you, no one really wants their loved one to die. I mean, when you see them suffering and you want them to be out of the suffering and, and yeah. not, not in, but at the end of the day, you are going to miss that person. So again, I think it's just about being honest with yourself. And if you can't give them the permission, then, then don't worry about that either. I think that's, yeah. you know, it's a nice thing to say really that if, if you feel you are able to. Um, but one thing I know from, from my experience is that when someone dies is so variable and it's not even we've been talking already about this is not a clinical thing we cannot predict and there's so many variables within it that we just don't know so you know if they hear you saying that uh, they have permission they, they might be able to hear that they might not be able to hear that we, yeah we just don't know but i think um if you are able to do that 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 might be helpful and if you are able to say important things to them but i try and encourage people to have those conversations earlier if they can you know um if if people have conversations that they want to have to have those as early as they can really um, rather than at this time yeah definitely in fact that really is funny how how conversations like this take you back to to when you're in that position i remember my brother had sort of rallied a bit when he was expected to die within 24 hours and i remember right when it did come to the end i got there and obviously the ward had been closed off it was you know very close at that point and i remember talking in his ear and i was just i mean i said all the things that it says here you know not not necessarily Mm. thank you i'm sorry i love you but it it was the (laughs) things that meant an awful lot to me and I wanted him to hear as he was on his way type of thing mm-hmm. um, but I remember that huge anxiety afterwards where you sort of look at the medical professionals and you say did he hear me did he hear me and they sort of say mm. yeah I'm you know because they're obviously are taking the, the vital signs and other things gently and and mm. very compassionately but you know it's so so close and you're not 100% sure and you know perhaps they've had a reasonable shot of morphine to keep them comfortable and it's a difficult one isn't it because you start to think did they hear me what would you mm-hmm. what would you say to people that are anxious about the last words? Yeah, I think I think we don't we don't know is the answer. We know that hearing is 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 something that goes a lot later than the other things. So people can hear perhaps when, when their ability certainly when their ability to speak is gone that people can still hear. Mm. And um, so so we we just don't know. So um, and certainly they can hear familiar voices. So we know that from just observing at the bedside that might not be a reaction when I come in the room um, but there would be a reaction when you know someone's husband or wife comes into the room or or sometimes vice versa which can be a bit irritating for relatives if if I walk in the room and they they might open their eye or or they might move a little bit because it's an unfamiliar voice Um, so 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 we just don't know and so it's absolutely fine to to, and and good to to say things in people's ears and and carry on talking because I say even if they don't hear exactly the words they'll hear the the sentiment behind it and the love and the and the familiar voice which is will be reassuring for them yeah that's a really good point now I'm going to finish actually by mentioning one of these final points because it reminds me a bit of a podcast we did last time out where um, we had a chat with a Catholic priest who brought his dog Bosco into the hospital. Yes, I know Bosco. And I know you know the the aforementioned wonderful creature who obviously brings great comfort to people and I I love the way that actually, you know, he's a a bounding, full of the joys of life type of dog but actually somehow gets all sensitive and calm and you know, helps soothe people as well. He's obviously very perceptive, I must say. But this yeah. this, this sort of segued into the consider, consider bringing small children for a brief visit. Because I suppose sometimes people are like, oh, my word, you can't have children. And they'd obviously have even more of a strong reaction to a dog, perhaps. But if it's appropriate and it's not disturbing others, I, I would say it's a good thing, is it? 
Absolutely. So children who are not aware of what's going on, gosh, absolutely bring them as much as, as you can. And then, then children who, who have an awareness, it's just about preparing them um, appropriately beforehand, but absolutely to, to involve all children. Um, because, again, it's, they're like adults. If you don't involve them, they're going to have the major concerns about what's going on that can affect them as well that yeah. uh, you know if this thing is hidden it must be so dreadful but no to actually to involve them and that's something where healthcare professionals can provide support and there's lots of support and information that for families well i have to say amy it's very reassuring to know there are experts like you out there with a good sense of the clinical a good sense of the human and thank you very much for giving us uh, the deathbed etiquette and all your well-researched views Thank you, you're welcome. Dr Amy Gaddo there, helping us with some rather useful deathbed etiquette. If you want to download this simple one-page guide, you can do so. Just head over to our website, artofdyingwell.org. Right, head to the kitchen, make a cup of tea and settle down for a little... Death chatter. It's just a chat about death. So, something a little bit different today. We're opening the archives to bring you a lovely chat that we recorded with the broadcaster and journalist Sheila Fogarty. I love Sheila, she's excellent, and hopefully you'll find out why in a minute. It stands to reason that if you're going to be a decent presenter on a daytime show, you have to get a little bit Terry Wogan about it, making your listeners feel like you're talking to each and every one of them individually. Sheila certainly has that gift, and I must say it was a terribly enjoyable chinwag, recorded a few months ago in the bowels, if that really is a word I should be using, of The Exchange, a theatre in Twickenham. So we're talking about death and dying and how it's taboo, but more and more people are talking about it. Colleagues in journalism, in fact, there are many sort of blogs and and people sharing and and it's amazing how you can make that connection and feel very close to them in those intimate moments. I think they're very brave to share them. I think they are brave to share them. I also think that there is a kind of discipline in in the project, I guess, for them that gives them a framework because if you're ill, you lose your normal framework of life, don't you, because you're ill. And I suppose in some cases it gives a framework to that life. I think you're right to say it's new. A new phase, I would say, of, of, of the conversation, because my guess is that human beings have always wanted to talk about death because we all lose someone and we all die. And there will have been different phases in, of history when people did or did not and how they did would have differed to how they do now. But I think social media, is, as you've alluded to, makes a huge difference. And I think that's one reason why it's become more prevalent and a good thing, I think, that's come out of social media. There have been some awful things that are coming out of social media, but there's plenty of good things as well, and, and I think that's one of them. And I do think that, you know, if you look back to, say, I don't know, the 70s, there were films like Love Story, famous film, you know, Who Will Care For or Who Will Love My Children? Remember that dreadful made-for-daytime TV film? But actually, not a great story, a, a really uh, human, real story. I think the need, to, the need to look at death and talk about it isn't new. But I think you're right that there is a new phase in that conversation. And I think it is being turbocharged by social media. And, and because of the generation that's born into social media and, and it's just part of their life, that scale of sharing is, well, you can't ignore it. So use it, harness it, I say. 
And in terms of accompanying people, well, let's be honest, you know, they say death and taxes, don't they? There, mm -hmm. are, there, are, there are things that are guaranteed to come our way yeah. and those that we love and those around us. And death and taxes and Piers Morgan. Uh, well, yes, the unavoidables, <laughs> the unavoidables. Um, now, you lost your dad in 2003. Yeah. And you're very close, Auntie Sheila of the same name in yes. 2006. She was Sheila one, I was Sheila two. She <laughs> never tired of telling me. And you said you had that sort of daughterly relationship in, with her. In the end, we did. Yeah, um, she was she was brilliant, brilliant person to have as an auntie. She's a brilliant mm. person to have as a friend. Um, I I now have nieces um, of varying ages, actually, and I sometimes get a real moment when I can feel that it's the same relationship forming again only I'm the I'm Auntie Sheila this time you know and uh, I have a photograph of my Auntie Sheila on the on my mantelpiece at home it's just a, it used to be in her house actually it's a beautiful picture with a lovely oval silver frame and she's wearing fuchsia pink in it because she was a really colourful lovely character and um, a few years ago one of my little nieces came into my living room and said there's you, pointed to, pointed to, and, and I, I don't think I look particularly like my Auntie Sheila, but she said, there's you, Auntie Sheila. And I said, no, that's the other Auntie Sheila. And she was like, which Auntie Sheila? You know? And it was a nice moment. It was just like a continuum in a way, you know. So, but yeah, she was, um, throughout her, her experience of cancer, she wasn't that sickly, thankfully. You know, she wasn't ill or ailing a great deal. But towards the, you know, during the chemo process, she needed support. She needed journeys to and from hospital She'd have done themselves sufficiently if she had to, but I, I had a job that facilitated having lots of time in the day. So that's how it came about that I ended up supporting her as much as I did, practically as much as anything else. Because I think a lot of it is practicalities, isn't it? Getting to and from hospitals and what have you. Um, and she was, I mean, she was just an incredibly strong woman anyway. Strong-willed, strong opinions, but clearly strong. My dad, her brother was the same, you know, courageous people who faced things. Yeah. and didn't expect to be exempt from trouble. Now, I'm sure, you know, despite being brother and sister, I'm sure they had very differing personalities in some ways. Yeah. Um, were they the sorts of people to want people around them during that vulnerable moment or during the times where they were very low or not feeling so good? I think, I think my father, my dad, not completely by any stretch of the imagination because he was an incredibly gregarious man and he wouldn't have had it in him to go completely in on himself. But he went in on himself a bit. But I think that's probably inevitable, isn't it? And my auntie, I can only speak for the times when she was, you know, with me. I, you know, who knows what she showed her close fr friends of her own generation? I don't know. But again, it was she was a very best foot forward kind of gal. And so uh, she, f for example, on the day she got very bad news, after a hospital appointment, I went to, to collect her before, I, before I'd been told the news from her. And um, picture sort of Diana Rigg. That's the kind of woman we're talking about, very elegant woman, you know. And she came sweeping through reception at the hospital and shook her head because I knew what she was going to be told or not told, you know, and she shook her head, meaning it's not good. And um, I said, what do you want to do? And I, I, have, I have a tendency to be a bit earnest sometimes. And I said... What, what do you want to do? What do you want to do now? And she said, uh, let's go to Harrods. And then, and then she immediately changed her mind and said, no, let's go to Osborne and Little, very posh wallpaper shop on mm -hmm. King's Road. Let's go to Osborne and Little and buy some expensive wallpaper because she needed to redecorate her front room. And I thought that was a brilliant response to being told that actually you were now in a stage of life where your condition was terminal and it was like, 
let's go and buy some seriously posh pot wallpaper. And she did. And I went past her old house the other day. It's still hanging on the walls. Isn't that a nice bit of defiance in a way? Yeah, like, it is. Know. It is. And she was, you know, and she, she used to call Harrods, what was it, an art gallery for clothes. She's not wrong, really, is she? And um, she used to love going there. And when I was a student, she'd be sending me parcels, in, you know, the old-fashioned sort of brown parceled stuff. Wrapped around. Wrapped around, around yeah. it, you know, parcels full of clothes that she was chucking out. And then she wondered whether I could make use of. And they were all, you know, Harvey Nicks and Harrods and da-da-da. And my girlfriends at college would be like, you had a parcel for your auntie Sheila, we, let's have a look. And I'd be handing them out, you know, you have that, that would suit you, you have that, that would suit you. But that's the kind of fun she generated and the kind of energy she had you know she was brilliant so she she wasn't difficult to care for because she didn't make it feel like being like I was caring for her you know the truth is like I she would just make every exchange fun so do you know what I like about that um there's not anything to like about cancer in that sense but I have to say what I like is the the fact that as a, you know, it can take a lot of things, an awful lot of things mm. from you physically oh. and mentally and your life at the end of it. Yeah, yeah. But it's wonderful that you've got these beautiful, brilliant, very effervescent, clear memories of yeah. her. So it can't take that. No, it can't. And, and, and ditto, my dad, there's a photograph of my dad. It's a, it's a really grainy photo. I don't, I don't know who took it. It wasn't me. But somehow, you know, we constantly text each other photos, don't we, these days? And somehow this photo ended up on my phone. And I only really tuned into it, noticed it properly after my dad had died. And it was at, at the local kind of church, the, uh, social club next door to the church. And it's, it's a really good place, actually. They, they, they do the classic sort of bingo and a performing artist, whatever, but as in a singer artist. But they're great at social events and, and you can hire it out for things. And we were there for God knows what reason, probably somebody's christening or something. And um, there's a photograph. And my dad was a very funny man. Witty, funny, not, have you heard the one about, I can't stand jokes, because I was raised by a very witty, I, w- I was raised, surrounded what by very is. witty people, yeah. and so jokes don't do it for me. <laughs> is that Too really? there is, yeah, is that Not really? original, not your yeah, own. Yeah, I remember going out with a guy who told lots of jokes, and I thought, this, this, cannot, this cannot go on. <laughs> this, this has to genuine wit, that's okay. Yeah, genuine wit, yeah. bring it, but oh yeah. my God, jokes, yeah, keep them. And puns are even worse, can't be doing with them. But, um, yeah, this photo I found of my father, who was the master of the one-liner, I can tell you. And I've no idea what he said. And my brother, who is in the photo with him, has no idea anymore what he said. But this was not long before he died. And my brother Patrick in it is in pleats of intent, really laughing. You can see him, Dad's just said something that's cracked him up and he's, in, he's laughing his head off. My dad's face is kind of... Like Rye, and he's pleased with what he's pleased with his little observation, and perhaps killing himself. It's a great photograph. So I had it, even though it's it's grainy, it's not that great. I had it blown up of just their faces together and framed it and gave him gave it to my brother for Christmas years ago. But it's those kinds of things where you just grab a moment, you know. And uh, and I was going through some old photos, trying to tidy things up, really, uh, you know, at some point in subsequent years, and I found a photograph of my dad and me. In Nina, in Tipperary, in Ireland, where, where they're from, that my parents are both from Tipperary. And um, we were going round a, a heritage centre, and we were in a 19th century school room, like a, you know, like a classroom of, in, in a typical classroom of the time. 
and there was a there was a cane, you know. So my dad gets the cane, and I, and then in the in the staged photo, I've got my hand out, and he's pretending to hit my hand with the thing, and I'm pretending to flinch and everything. And it was just classic bit of messing about that we would do. These days, you'd have social services. You'd have social services, you know, yeah, yeah. And uh, and it was a real cane as well. But he was he was he was a messer, you know. He liked to mess about. So all of that wit is still there as well. All of that sort of. But you've got to hold on to that, haven't oh, you? Yeah. Because Wonderful. and I also I also my experience of both my dad and my auntie, is that no matter what has been going on in my life subsequently, or in the world, Brexit, Donald Trump, God, I'd love to sit down in a room with my dad watching Donald Trump. That would be, that would be, you know, Friday night at the Hammersmith Apollo, I can tell you. It would be hilarious. <laughs> but I don't really need... Well, we have to bleep it a bit. No, 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 not in my house. But he, I know what both of them would say about everything. So if I have a dilemma, obviously I speak to my mum who's still alive and with us, thankfully. If I have a dilemma, I know what he'd say. So he's always available to me. So do you feel he's still with you? Oh, completely, yeah. Not physically, obviously, but he is completely available to me as a father still, yeah. Apart from, yeah. And that's... And beautiful. Yeah, that's that's been a surprise actually to me. And what surprised me immediately after his death in particular, because it was my first real deep experience of death, close experience of death, was how straight away my feelings about his death weren't really to do with me. They were subsequently further down the line. They were more to do, because he knew how to live. You know, he was, he was, never mind the art of dying, the art of living, he had that. And I remember thinking, oh, that's it, that's his bite of the cherry gone. Damn, you know, and I really felt it for him for a while. And maybe that was just a defense mechanism <laughs> holding off how I felt about it, but yeah. So, no, they're both very much present. But, you know, with the Art of Dying Well project, we often do talk about dying well. Yeah. Uh, comes from living well as yeah. well. Yeah. They are, you know, they're, they're intrinsically well. linked. We do a lot of talking about births and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But this sort of slightly taboo and uncomfortable and mm-hmm. anxiety-forming mm-hmm. thing that is death, that mm-hmm. we, we all, to an extent, even if we're putting a stiff upper lip approach yeah. on it, are fearing yeah. a bit, there needs to be more chat about that. We talk about losing people. You are losing a person in a physical sense. Of course you're losing a person. But they are dying. They have died. It is death. And the more we say it as it is, but I think it's a really important point. Which, you know, I, having, we had a large hiatus with this podcast, but having presented it for a year, the amount of times that, even though we're talking about these tough subjects and we'd really go into it and we'd all relax into it and it would be a worthwhile conversation, Mm. very, very worthwhile. I would still start at the very start in quite British fashion. I'd be saying things like passed away. You yeah, know, I'd use yeah, those phrases. Yeah, I've I, done it I wouldn't really mean to, I've but. I've done it myself. You know, and it's, you know. It's not really the right language, I don't think. No, I, well, I, I think if we're going to make it more like a birth. And I've been. Have you, have you been with someone when they've given birth? Several times. Yeah, I, I have once <laughs> been with somebody. Were they your own children? I have five. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I have, well, I have no children, but I was with my best friend, Linny, Lynn, when she gave birth to her daughter, who's now 20. Lynn's husband was there, and another friend, Jane, was there. Now, we were there during the labour to give Graham a break, to be friends, to be fun, you know, whatever. Um, and as the whole process, you know, progressed, she, she said to the midwives, would it be all right if my friends stayed? I'd like them to stay, because we had quite a big room, actually. 
We had a big room because she was in a room that had a, a birthing pool in yeah. it, which she was in for a bit, but she wanted to give birth on dry land. I'd have so been in the pool, just so you know. <laughs> I was going, don't get out of the pool, what's wrong with you? She said, oh no, I'm, I've had enough, so out she came. But I have known her since we were four years old. Jane, our other friend, has known her since she was 16 years old, and her husband's known her since she was 26 years old. So, first dibs, me. And the weirdest thing happened, and it happened to my father as well, but when he was dying, in, in Lynn's case, it was when she was giving birth, her face got younger and younger and younger to my eyes. And it happened to my dad's face as well. My dad basically morphed into one of my brothers, facially, as he was dying. You know, when the cares of the world kind of leave your face. And I, I can't explain it. I don't know. You know. It's a kind of transfiguration is how I think of it in both cases. I remember, I mean, I, you know, I'm not squeamish and I'm well aware that it wasn't me giving birth and I was quite calm about being with my friend. And my sister's a midwife and she was going, you're going to be okay with this? You're going to be all right with this? And, and I said, we're fine. And, I, and like the, the gory bit wouldn't bother me a bit. And then I found that as her face got younger and younger during the latter stages of the labour, the, the, the proper labouring stages of it, you know, I was just completely overwhelmed. And I said, I, I have to leave. <laughs> I'm going to leave the room. And I went, it makes me well up, just thinking about it. I went off, splashed my face in the loos and thought, oh my God, I can't stand by my friend while she's giving birth and just sob. This is ridiculous. That's okay. And No, it isn't. Well, it's okay at the end when there's a baby. That's fine. But when she needs you to be, you know, her strength and support, it's like, I can't. Your face is changing. But she was literally turning into facially, the little girl I used to play with on the step, with our dolls and da 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 da. And I was like, oh! and the other two had no notion what was going through my mind, you know, and it was a funny, it was a funny experience. But similarly, different kettle of fish, obviously, but the same thing happened to my dad's face as he was dying. And so I think the birth-death comparisons are really valid, actually. Um, and I've got friends who, during their labours, have felt very strongly the presence of a dead parent. I've got two female friends who've, who've experienced that. They just felt really strongly that that person was physically there. Yeah. You know, so the two are closely connected without, without a doubt. It is, isn't it? Hard yeah. to explain, but fascinating. Yeah, I can't explain anything. <laughs> you know, don't look to me for any explanations. I'll describe stuff till I'm blue in the face. But You can carry the story. Yeah, I can carry the story. <laughs> don't know what's going on. Oh, I did enjoy that. A perfect guest, I'd say, for our death chatter. Now, when you're with someone who's dying, it's important to give them the space to say what they want, even if they're frightened or angry. Sister Liz Farmer is certainly someone that knows that more than most. You might remember Sister Liz. She's been on the podcast before, so if you've heard her in the chaplain's chair, you'll already know she loves a good yarn. Today, she tells us about a dying woman who was an atheist and initially wasn't best pleased to see a nun calling round to visit. The voice from the chaplain's chair. I think the first thing is for us all to realise that we have our own spirit. And that spirit is alive and active in us. And it's that spirit that's so important when we're on this journey. It's a journey into the unknown. So it's a journey when we need the spirit that gives us courage, gives us strength, get up and go. And to be able to share that. Now, I know this is all stories, but there was this lovely lady, Olive, who um, lived on her own, 
very quiet, unassuming lady. But when she came to the door when I went to see her, absolutely horrified, see me in a veil. I can't have anything, any nuns in here, she said. I'm an atheist. But I said, could I just come in and, and explain? Oh, all right, if you have to. So anyway, I was explaining to her that my job was to go with her on her journey. It had nothing to do with religion, nothing to do with anything to do with God. Just she and me. So she said, oh, well, or we, well, we could work at it, maybe. She was a bit grumpy. But she got used to me coming in every week and chatting to her. And she very quickly told me that she had been a great mountaineerer and how she missed the mountains and the open air. And I thought, oh, gosh, I can't bring the open air and the mountains into her. But I very quickly caught on to her showing me photographs and getting her to tell me the stories behind the the trips that she made. And the other thing that I found really helpful was that I spoke to her in my limited mountaineering language, like when she couldn't make it upstairs anymore, it was devastating for her. And I said, well, you know, when you went on your trips, Olive, you had to stop at base camp for quite a while before you could move on. So let's look on this as base camp. So that was all right. We got everything into the one room for base camp. And she just never, ever spoke about God, never spoke about creation or anything like that. And I didn't either, but we did talk a lot about mountaineering. I got my brother, who's the photographer, to take big blow-ups of some of her photographs. And then we pasted them around the walls so that she could see them. So she got an image of mountains, even though I couldn't get her out. And then one day she phoned me and she said, you know, Liz, I'm really not feeling good. So I said, oh, I'll come out and see you. Well, she said... The thing is that I'm really feeling bad. And I said, OK, I'll be there. And she said, well, I think, you know, I messed you about a bit, but I think maybe I should go into that hospice place you talked about. So I said, OK, I'll see what I can do. So I rang them and they said it was OK. They could get a bed. So we organised for her to go in. And when I went to see her, she said, thanks for doing that, Liz, because I'm very tired. But I know that tomorrow morning I am going to see the most wonderful sunrise. And she died at about 4am the next day. And that comment about seeing the wonderful sunrise was the most spiritual thing that we had said between each other in the whole of that six months. And yet we had grown together in our spirit. It's only a question of finding out What's the spirit? What triggers that? What helps that to open up to each other? Simple, really. Thanks very much, Sister Liz. My word, haven't we had a few stories on today's Art of Dying Well podcast? Remember, you can download our deathbed etiquette resource from the Art of Dying Well website. Just a little reminder, that's artofdyingwell.org. And it only really remains for me to say thank you very much for your company, for listening to us. We've got a rather special podcast for you next time, but I'm not going to give too much of that away at this point. Suffice to say, stay with us and we'll be back with another Art of Dying Well podcast very soon indeed. Indeed.